You are listening to the Hoops Fix podcast, the official voice of the UK's largest basketball website. Visit hoopsfix.com for exclusive news, videos and more. Welcome to another episode of the Hoops Fix podcast with me, your host, Sam Nita, full-time British basketball advocate. And this week's show, we have none other than Tim Lewis. He is one of the uh, most respected uh, British coaches currently plying his trade abroad. Tony G calls him a bit of a British trailblazer because of uh, what he's done overseas uh, in the time that he has left. A former player himself, he's represented the junior and senior national teams, obviously played pro as well, earned himself a Division One scholarship to the to University of uh, New Hampshire in the States, um, and then eventually, yeah, ended up making the switch uh, to coaching. And, uh, yeah, kind of in 2006 made a, made a big switch of really kind of pursuing his dream hard, giving up teaching um, and trying to make the basketball dream happen. Uh, since then, he's done stints all over the place, whether it be Thailand uh, with the Qatar national team, uh, Germany, um, the Philippines, America, done multiple stints with the G League uh, and with NBA teams. So, yeah, fascinating to kind of get his perspective. We did something a little bit different. Obviously, normally I follow a kind of uh, historical timeline of, of someone's career, but I would recommend you go and check out his podcast uh, on Basswingers Timeout Podcast with Tony G, which kind of goes into more his journey on this. We did do that a little bit, but actually focused on various different topics around things that he's done um, just to kind of give it a little bit of a different angle. But it was a thoroughly enjoyable conversation. He gave a, a real unique perspective, and I think you, you can hear there's a lot of value to give, um, and it does beg the question when he actually talks about it is like why is his knowledge not extracted uh, and, and sort of distributed or, or connected uh, with British coaches more in this country why is there not a way um, for him to be able to kind of you know uh, provide that knowledge and information back to the next generation to help to help the sport grow um, because he's clearly got a wealth of experience and is someone that should be uh, more involved with the game here so a bunch of stuff to talk about whether it's 2012 olympics um or just the state of coaching in general and what needs to be done to help kind of grow and elevate uh, the status of things over here yeah it was it was a yeah great conversation which i think you will enjoy as much as i did uh, as always before we get into the show please take two seconds to check out our patreon account patreon.com forward slash hoopsfix that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash h-o-o-p-s-f-i-x there you can sign up to give us a monthly or annual contribution of as much or as little as you would like uh, the price of a cup of coffee the price of a sandwich you won't even notice that money leaving your account every month but it goes a long way in helping us do the things that we're trying to do to help grow the british basketball media landscape so please go and check it out patreon.com forward slash hoops fix as always if you're watching on youtube leave a comment below let me know let me know what you think about what tim had to say um if you want some private one-on-one interaction you can drop me an email sam at hoopsfix.com or you can reach me on every single social media platform at hoopsfix Anyway, that is enough from me. Here is this week's show with Tim Lewis. Tim, welcome to the show. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. Pleasure to have you. Uh, there's obviously so much stuff to go into. Your career um, has been very well travelled, uh, seen a lot of places, done a lot of things, uh, and it's yeah, it's hard to kind of even think about where to begin. Um, but I guess... Because I, I said to you before we start recording, I, I listened to obviously your interview with Mark Woods uh, with MVP and uh, your interview with, with Tony G, um, which I encourage people to go and check out as well, which will obviously provide a bit more context. But the, the thing that struck out to me uh, was a quote that you said, which was opportunity over money. And it seems like that has been a, a big, um, I guess, guiding force factor in, in sort of your journey, your path uh, in, in coaching. And mm-hmm. I'd just like to hear you riff on that a little bit and kind of uh, your thoughts about that and, and why that is something that um, 
I guess has been a, a sort of guiding guiding light in, in, in your career? Yeah, I think, you know, as a British coach with uh, lots of obstacles to overcome, it, you're not going to ultimately walk straight into jobs that are going to pay you a lot of money. Um, and, you know, we're talking six figures plus. And uh, to turn down opportunities early on, it, it just didn't make any sense. And that's the way that it's continued. And somebody early on said to me, look, don't, don't take and pick jobs over, over money situations. Take the jobs for the opportunity. Because if you do well and you progress and you prove yourself, then, uh, you know, good things will happen. And, and that's what I've stuck with. And that's what I believed. I've sort of gone from level to level and enjoyed coaching at those levels and then found another opportunity. The only disadvantage to that is it, it's shown that there's been, you know, short periods of time in certain places. Some of those, um, were choice. Some of those were, you know, driven by changes in organization or needs of organizations that you're already in. So, how difficult do you find it or have you found it in the past to potentially give up that uh, financial security and stability um, that you know so many of us want need uh, but knowing or, or believing that sort of down the line it's going to pay off and there's going to be um, there's going to be a payoff for, for that sacrifice sure I think the first thing is you've got to back yourself you've got to believe in what your abilities are and if 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 you didn't if I didn't take that approach, then those doors wouldn't open. Um, I was a school teacher, like a lot, a lot of basketball coaches were. I, you know, I played and taught, and then I coached and taught at different levels. And teaching always gave you a security. You know, you I could go and coach basketball because I knew I I had a job during the week that would allow me to do it. I got divorced in two thousand and six, and life kind of changed. Um, opportunities present itself. Uh, I knew that I'd always wanted to be involved in basketball full time. I was always passionate about that. And um, I sat back and reviewed education had changed considerably. And the choice for me was very easy. And I just backed myself and, you know, it's like launching your kids. I was 36 or 37 when I did it. So, uh, you know, I relaunched myself and, and I don't really you have no regrets at all. It's been a great journey. I've had some great experiences uh, and then coached in some great clubs and great, great uh, countries. Do you think uh, you would have ever ended up making that jump if it wasn't for the divorce? Like when, when I look at my situation, for example, I know there's a lot of things I do right now uh, and have done for the last decade or so that if mm -hmm. I was in a situation where I had a partner and I had kids, I don't think they would have been an option. Um, yeah, do you, do you think that the divorce was what allowed you to suddenly make that leap? Or do you think that actually it would have come to a point where you felt like, you know what, this is always what I've wanted to do. I'm going to make this jump. It just would have maybe come a bit later. You know, I had opportunities, a couple of opportunities when I was married that that I had to decline because of that situation of being married. And I think coaching is a, a volatile environment, no matter what level you're at. There's there's always, you. I think I said it in my last podcast or interview, you're always going to be hired to be fired. And there's ultimately change. I mean, we see it in all professional sports. Um and to do that with a young family is is definitely very difficult. With a spouse that could work anywhere or 
has an understanding of what you're doing and you're earning enough money, then you could do it. But I think early on, especially coming out of England, where you're not going to jump into jobs that are going to pay enough money to support your family. I went to Grand Canaria initially and was, I don't know, $500 maybe a month, you know, living for free, but starting on a, pro on a journey that I wanted to, to sort of live. So I think it's extremely difficult. And I think it's the biggest, one of the biggest factors is for, for British coaches is they're very stable in their jobs. Most people have a job and they coach. There are young guys that have reached out and spoken about my journey and how it's happened that would like to take that step, but that's a huge anchor around them. You know, I go work in France and I give up, I pay 500. I can't cover this. I can't pay for that. Um, and so that that's a stopping block. And I think it is a huge uh, noose around people's necks that they, they prevents them from moving forward. When you talk about, um, I guess, the, the barriers that, that British coaches faces, face, the, the ones that I guess you were facing when, when you were in the UK before you, before you made the leap to, to, to go overseas. And then I guess the same, the same when, you, when you went overseas as a British coach, the perception of you as a British coach, kind of what would you say about the kind of the barriers and the perception and uh, I guess that whole dynamic of being a, a coach within uh, basketball? Yeah, I think initially the biggest barriers that I found was being able to coach full-time in England. You know, it just wasn't possible. I mean, you, first off, the doors were, the, the doors weren't open. There were people that were set where they wanted, you know, in the jobs that they'd been in. Um, and that was part of the big reason that we started Essex Pirates was ultimately to give British kids a window of opportunity and a highlight that has missed out and then to allow us to coach. Um, and so, so that was the biggest factor. And then when you go overseas, the first thing is, you know, you're not American, you're not Serbian, you're not Spanish, you're not, you know, you go down a list of countries and people will ultimately, you coach soccer, don't you? Or you, you don't coach basketball. And so there's that stigma still, I think, um, it may have eased slightly now with the progression of British basketball in terms of obviously competing at the Olympics and then, you know, success recently. Um, you know, but I look at, at Mark. I mean, Mark, I coached when he was a, a youngster and now he's got an opportunity to really start to move out. Um, but the same thing's around him, family, kids, was in a job. I know there's some, some changes going on, but it's hard. It's hard to, to compete against people, especially when you have Greeks that'll do it for $1,000 a month and Serbians that'll do it for $500 a month. And, uh, you know, teams, especially in today's current climate, are very conscious of costs. So to give up a job that's paying you, I don't know, school teacher salary for a year and then you go and do it for 500, a thousand big stepping yeah. block for people. Did you think, uh, you know, within the BBL, we see, I think 
there, the BBL, it feels like the BBL isn't as cutthroat maybe as other leagues in Europe in terms of coaches losing their jobs, you know, after poor performances. You know, it's, um, there is a, a lot of much more longer t- tenured uh, coaches in, in the domestic league. And uh, so there's what, then you're talking about 11 full-time, full-time jobs. Uh, I don't, th- I'm trying to think whether there are assistant coaches within the BBL that are also full-time. I don't, I don't think there is. Um but do you think the league needs to look at trying to provide more opportunities as, for assistant coaches that are salaried within uh, sort of that professional club structure to help that that coach development and provide opportunities for for coaches? Like, what needs to be done to provide to be able to provide more uh, paid opportunities for for coaches in the UK? I, I I'm also long tenured when you're, you're winning. I mean, Rob Paternoster has done an unbelievable job at Leicester. You know, why would you change that? But I think where you have situations that either players don't develop or the program doesn't move forward, then there should be an evolution of coaches. Um, I think we struggle in England because we don't provide the opportunities you're talking about. There are no full-time assistants. There are no opportunities for those people to focus on basketball. So they're not investing in their trade. Um, You go and coach anywhere else in the world and you've got full-time assistants. I'm not saying they're making a lot of money, but they're full-time. They're focused on what they have to do day in, day out. And we don't provide that. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's been that way forever and it's worked and it's a model that people have, have accepted. And, and I think that's why we see improvements, but we don't see major gains. Um, and there are a number of coaches in the BBL that have been extremely successful that have, have continued to be successful. And it's like any league, they'll rehash some of the same coaches. Um, but there are also coaches that probably need to move on and allow younger coaches to come through. And that's the problem is that as a young coach in England, what's my, what's my pathway? Like we talk away pathway for the last, I don't know how many years since I was involved with GB basketball, but in terms of the BBL pathway, a young aspiring coach what's my end game am i going to go and coach at london lions probably not am i going to go and coach at plymouth whatever you know whatever club you choose there's probably not a lot of opportunity and there are some talented coaches in england that need that that opportunity to go it's a struggle for them to go overseas because of the things we just talked about and then it's a struggle for them to advance in their own country and you find that they tend to stagnate in Division One or Division Two, and never have an opportunity to move forward. Um, I think probably you would want more teams in the BBL. Um, you know, we threw around ideas many years ago about you know let, create a team that young British kids play in, a, cr- a crew of British staff. Maybe it's linked to national national teams. Um, something that's going to help us overall. But I think there's a lot of options you could look at. But ultimately, at the moment, um, you know, why is Mark not coaching in the top-level leagues? Now, he has jobs, and there may be other reasons, and it may be it was easier to coach at, at at the level he was coaching at. But I think it's the the thing that holds us back in terms of developing our coaches. And I don't necessarily think we do enough to develop coaches. I think there's coaches that have experience. Um, 
that don't get utilized to help feedback our experiences, pathway, how do we do that, um, and stuff like that. So if a younger coach came to you and said, you know, my, my, my dream one day is to be a full-time professional coach, wherever that might be, um, like, and the pathway isn't clear to me about what I should do and how I should make that happen. Like, what advice would you would you personally give? It's funny because there's been a couple of coaches. Most recently, Troy from um, Troy Cully from Iceco. Troy Cully from Iceco has. We've had an ongoing sort of development over a Zoom, which has been great. It's been great to give back and feedback. And I've always felt deeply about you know trying to help. British basketball, English basketball, anyway. Um, but that just seems to never have been on a radar in terms of using those, those experiences. Uh, so to, to me, the first thing is you have to back yourself and you have to be prepared to give up whatever you're doing now to take that path. And then that means, a sac- you know, sacrifice money, li- leaving and living in a different country. You might be living in all sorts of conditions but you ultimately get the opportunity overseas and you build a resume. And I think that's really important. People in Europe or anywhere in the world will, won't necessarily hire British coaches looking at you with just British experience on there. I've coached at you know, Division One, Division Two. I ran an academy. To them, that means nothing. When they start to see that there's... Oh, I was, you know, he was in Spain for six months. Oh, he went to Germany for a year. He went to, it shows that you've taken that step, I think. And that's the biggest thing for those young coaches. You've got to understand that you probably, you could go, you may not succeed, you may get fired, but you continue to grow your network and, and follow the dream that you're, you're doing. So the, the biggest thing is sacrificing where you're at, what you're doing and be prepared to put both feet in, not just dip your toes in. You've got to put both feet in and then be prepared to move forward. And I sometimes think there are a lot of people, not just in the UK, but there's a lot of people like the idea of being a professional coach, but don't necessarily want to embrace, embrace everything that goes with that. Because it's not an easy life. It's, you know, you're packing your bags, you're living out of suitcases, you're moving, you may move every year, you may be two years, you may be without a job for six months to, a, you know, so it's different. And 99% of us are wired very differently, stable job, you know, social life, whatever. So um, it's tough, but just back yourself, take that first step, you know, and I think guys that are involved with national teams are at an, op- at an advantage simply because they're, they're exposed to European international teams, clubs, coaches, and so maximize those opportunities. I've always been an advocate of being involved with the national teams. I think it's, it's a great experience. It's a great opportunity to, to grow your level of coaching and your network. Um, but there should be a pathway, you know, start at the development end and 16s, 19, 18, 17, whatever it is the age groups are that now function. On the, the flip side of that, you know, that's your advice for, for individual coaches. If, if you're in charge in the, on the federation side 
in the UK of of developing more coaches and developing more world class coaches, elite coaches. What would you do differently? Uh, you know, compared to what what they're doing now. Um, what are the things that you would like to see in terms of either outlining the pathway, defining a pathway, or making uh, sort of career progression clearer um, to help the development of coaches? I think, and I don't know fully what the where we're at now. I mean, I haven't been back and really involved with British basketball since 2012. Um, I think there's a disconnect we have that disconnect with BBL, or there used to be with BBL and the pathway with British English basketball. And in a lot of countries, all those leagues have a progression. You know, they have feeder teams that are linked to it, and those those coaches will will move move through it. The coaching qualifications are, can, I think, more difficult in different countries. They expect more of you. Because it's a profession. You know, when you go to Italy, it's a profession. When you go to Spain, it's a profession. In our country, it's almost like you're arming a volunteer army to go out and coach in the environments that we're asking to coach in. And I think that's probably the biggest issue, is that we expect all our basketball clubs to run primarily on a volunteer basis. And you can't do that. And so, therefore, the, the, the governing body's got to find a way that it's, it becomes a proper job. It becomes a proper opportunity. So instead of being a teacher, I'm going to become a full-time coach like you would in soccer. You know, how do we mirror it? How do they mirror it? How do they do it in France? How do they um, – so funding's a major issue, and I know that's still ongoing. Um, and where are our priorities? And then a connect to the to the professional league in in England. There are very few coaches that I can think of that move from uh, English basketball level one, two, and three leagues to the BBL. And it goes back to what you talked about. There's a lot of long tenured coaches that don't really then provide opportunities for the. So what's our pathway? Division one um, is probably not a high enough level for the top coaches to be coaching in. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, tough questions that, that I think if anyone knew the answer to, uh, the game would be in a very different situation <laughs> than, than, it, than, it, than it is right now. Yeah, right? you know, I think the, the academies have probably helped, Sam. As, you know, that you've got some good coaches, but again, you've got coaches now at the top end of those academy levels which really need to be pushed to go to the next step. Where, does, where is that next step? Do I go overseas? I mean, this is, these are the conversations, you know, Troy's been having. Um, it's very hard. Like, does he, you know, he's qualifying as a teacher. How does he go there? How does he get there? There doesn't seem to be a lot of guidance. And I, I'm not in the country, and there may be, but there doesn't seem from the periphery a lot of guidance to, to, to allow those guys to grow. So we reach the top end of those academies. What's my next step? I go mm -hmm. coach at Division Two. Uh, I want to go and coach at Division uh, BBL, but how do I do that? They don't. There's no money. They don't pay me, so I've got to go and find a job. So it's just this vicious circle. Yeah. And I think that's why some of our better coaches now are coaching at the the, the academy level. They're comfortable. They they've got a full time job. 
And to take that next step in the UK is actually really hard to decipher. And it shouldn't be, you know, London, we should have teams in London that have got money that should be able to promote coaching. But I don't know whether there has ever really been an emphasis on the development of coaches. I think we, we do dabble with it, we play with it, but not to the extent that it that it needs to be. Do, do you think that uh, when you're talking about the development of the game in terms of you know really improving the standard of players uh, and then obviously the standard of national teams and national team success in the future and everything else, do you think that is fundamentally uh, down to the level of coaches that we have and the number of coaches that we have to be able to provide opportunity for players? Absolutely. I think if we don't have the quality of coaches that can continue like at each level, you know, I'm trying to think if you go to Serbia, Serbia, imagine a big circle and lots of, or a little circle with lots of circles outside of it. They know that that first circle, they've done their job. They move it on to the next coaches and then the next coaches and the next coaches. And ultimately they go to, you know, red star or partisan or wherever they go. We've never had that. We've always had pockets of, I think, pockets where people will keep kids and they don't necessarily have the best coaches working with them. And so our pathway for players has never been directed through Sam Nieder's going to go to London club, then he's going to go to London B club, and then he's going to go to London A club, and then he's playing with the BBL club. It's always, it's always been, as far as I can see, pockets holding kids, never really moving kids to the best areas. So I think having or developing coaches at national teams and having the best coaches around definitely helps to grow the game and grow the players. Um, but if we're not developing them in the right way or giving them the opportunities to grow, did I beat around the bush there? I'm not sure. No, no, no. no, no that makes sense. I completely get what you're saying. Jumping back to academies, like, you know, my understanding of um, of, of Essex Pirates when you set it up was to ultimately, you know, you've got the academy and then the pro club is providing sort of real opportunities for young British players, you know. And it's one thing um, to say that you've got British players and young British players on your roster, but it's a completely different thing to actually provide real opportunities where they're going to sure. play and, and get a chance <clears throat> to develop, okay? Um and of course, for, for the you know the, the it was what two 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 seasons that, that ultimately mm-hmm. the, the the program existed, uh, you you did that. Now, why do you think it is that we haven't seen um, another pro club sort of well in, definitely in the, in the years that I've been around, and I, and I don't think before that that's really been able to do that. Like you know now we're in a situation where I think when we're talking about academies in the BBL. Um, the Leicester Riders have got the most successful uh, sort of junior junior setup um, for, for when we're talking about the pro teams. But actually, even then, uh, when you look at the minutes across their their professional team, uh, the players that are in their academy really aren't getting to play a whole lot or getting sort of meaningful opportunities um, at the pro level. Like, what's so difficult about being able to provide uh, sort of meaningful opportunities for young British players? Why have we not seen uh, more BBL clubs uh, try to do essentially what, what the Essex Pirates are trying to do? I think, <clears throat> I think a big part of that is fear of failure. And when we go back to, you talk about long tenured coaches and we're not necessarily assessing on wins and losses. My thought basis is that, why aren't we doing more of this? 
why aren't we giving players an opportunity at the top levels? Um, and it's sort of contradictory. I think coaches, they would rather have three or four veterans, four or five Americans, whatever it is that we are allowed now, and play that way. And it's always been a part of the BBL that it's never really been bought into, I think, is that the player development. And in terms of player development, they may have a feeder team or an academy, but then the opportunity to play at that highest level, you know, it's like soccer. You know, I mean, we talk about how ruthless soccer is in terms of taking young players, putting them through an academy, boom, they're in the, in, in the top teams. They're not good enough. They don't make it. Part of our academies is we want more kids because it generates more money. It's not always about the development of the best players. So I think when we were at Essex, the mindset was when you look at the players, you know, Miles and Jamel uh, and um, a few of those other guys, they were never going to play. Until they had, until they became on the scene at, at within the Pirates organization and GB or whatever it was, those kids would have gone under the radar potentially. Um, and I think that whether we won or lost wasn't what we were about. And I, ne people never really understood that. We wanted to be in the BBL to pre present opportunities for British kids that clearly had talent to play. Um, and I think, you know, there's a lot about what went on with the club when we, when we tried to move to London and it was, it was kind of blocked. I think had we been able to get to three and four years and financially it become more stable, which is always an issue with, in that environment. I think we, we would have started to achieve because there were some kids coming through the academy that ended up going to college in the, in, in the States, playing Division I. Um, but there was never a fear of losing. It was about coaching the kids the right way, giving them an opportunity to compete and highlighting their um, strengths to, to teams. And ultimately, they're going to move on. It wasn't that they were going to stay with Essex for the next 10 years it would open up an opportunity for them to go and play at the highest level they could achieve. And if that was the BBL, great. If that another team in the BBL, if it was in Europe, like Miles has gone to France. Um, you know, Jamel went to Australia for a while and those kids have had a great opportunity to, to go and, and play. And it wasn't just us, the Pirates, that did that. There were people before us that had helped those kids get to where they are. Um, but it doesn't, doesn't make sense in terms of, we're not going to hire, we're not going to fire coaches on the basis of wins and losses. The majority of the time, then let's invest in British players. Let's build the base of our British players. When you go back and look at, I don't know, when I played in the eighties and crystal palace and you had all those teams that it was full of British kids, full and, uh, high level. And we have those kids. Look at the kids that are playing in the States. Why can't we retain those kids? Because I think we don't offer the right quality or advancement for them through what we do here at the moment. Do you think it would be possible that, that uh, in the UK we could get to a place where there could be a compelling enough offer 
to um, keep like well to, to to basically make a kid that that has an option to go to a division one school in the states actually make a choice and say no nah, do you know what i, I want to stay here in the uk and and you know earn a bit of money maybe potentially get a degree if, if there's a link with the university um and you know be a professional basketball player and just sort of mainly focus on on, on the basketball side of things do you do you think that the uk do you think that's a realistic proposition to get to a position where uh it is a it is an option like it's a choice that kids will want to make uh, rather than being so laser focused on on the u.s college route i think the u.s option has always been so attractive because it of what they see but they're in reality for some of those kids we hear about the successes there's a lot of kids that go to the states that don't have success they go to the wrong program they bounce around they end up in different things um, I think it's achievable in the UK, but I think we have to have teams playing in Europe, which means we've got to have more money coming into programs. Um, I, and I think you, you, you know, teams like Leicester have an educational route that rivals any university in the States in terms of Loughborough. I mean, it, uh, unbelievable university in terms of sport and the opportunities that it presents. Um, but we need teams to be playing then at a higher level. What's what's your long long term perspective? Like if you look at teams in in Europe, they're signing these kids for five six years, but they're paying the kids. They're not doing it for peanuts. They're not. You know, they're, so it's a different route. Not all kids are suited to university. So we're now sending more kids to Europe because we can't cater to them in the UK. I think it's achievable, but I think there's a number of things that probably need to be addressed, you know, finances, level of play, um, and then playing time, making sure that they're playing. A kid's not going to want to make a decision to stay in the UK to spend four years just playing two or three minutes a game. There's no opportunity for them to develop in, in the way that they need to at the highest level. When you do a sort of post mortem on on the Essex project, um, what would yeah, like what would be your analysis be of, of of the mistakes that were made that potentially didn't give it the longevity that you originally wanted it to have? Uh, kind of what ultimately led to its demise? Why didn't it last longer? I mean, ultimately, it was money. We um, we had a a business plan, a big project plan to move it to Crystal Palace into London. And uh, we had backers on board financially and um, it was rejected. And w as soon as that happened, obviously money. When you say it was rejected, rejected by who? The BBL board. So we, uh, we, we had everything in place. We had some major sponsors, ma major backing that would, um, do it in relationship with Greenwich Leather, but there was resistance from a number of people around London. And this has been another, I think, sticking point for British basketball. Instead of being a collaborative group of people that want to see the game grow, we've got these pockets that, that want to control certain areas. So for us, we were prepared to move into that third season, moving it to Crystal Palace. We had a business plan in place. And they just said no. And as soon as that happened, Audi had been prepared to step up and put considerably more money in. Um, 
we had considerably more money coming in from uh, a couple of new sponsors, um, some innovative stuff Graham Wilson was working on, um, and it just hit a brick wall. And the vision, like for us to move forward, I you know I do I'd utilize my own finances in the first two years, along with with Audi, to get something that we really believe could be progressive. And uh, we just hit a brick wall. And wow. the winning and the losing, as I said to you before, wasn't the dr driver. It was con to continue to give. And if we did it in the right way, we knew that longer term, the winning would ultimately come to place. Um, so that was really what happened. It, it was just a brick wall. The, the board that met just uh, dismissed it. So there was so basically for the third season originally the plan was to be in Crystal Palace but then the moment that was blocked you would you would then face with the prospect of actually you'd have to stay in Essex that was an option for the financials for the financial backers of the project and so ultimately they pulled the plug and that was it yeah so you know we we'd reviewed that it we felt that there were a lot of limitations in being based where we were we'd managed it the first year or so but we had university links with uh, University of East London that were basically online, playing out of Palace, very similar to some of the things that have happened long term. Yeah. So, you know, you, what what can you do? There's, your pockets are only so, only so deep, and we basically came back from that, reviewed whether or not we it was worthwhile continuing in the area that we were um and you know those people that some of those major backers didn't want to be involved it was in essex and so it was it was really a financial decision to how, i mean how much of a like a, a personal blow was that for you like obviously you you know you've put at that point, because you did a year before with the academy before you did the pro club, yep. right? So you'd put in at that point you'd put in three years of your life into into building the program. You thought that it was kind of set in terms of the vision for the future, and then and then the plug is pulled. Like, I mean, that must be an incredibly difficult thing to deal with. Yeah, it was disappointing, I, I, especially because of I thought I felt at the time we were very different to what everybody else was, what all the other you know, clubs were. Um, we would have integrated, I think, over the next couple of years, probably one or two imports that would complement the younger players, the right kind of people, high character, leaders within an environment. But the, the goal was, we're going to play with British talent and we're going to give these kids opportunities and they're going to learn and they're going to get better from it. It's going to help the national teams and it's going to help them long term. And having played at Palace as a youngster, seen all that, Palace was a dream to go back to. You know, it was, you know, go back and recreate what, what had happened before. Um, so it was, yeah, it was disappointing. And I think it, what was more disappointing was just a lack of vision. They, I think the BBL at the time were very much weighed down by you only won seven games, you only won six, you know, whatever games we won. But I look at the league now, and we've got teams that are consistently winning six or seven games with a full complement of imports. So it just, it just, it, it frustrated me more that people couldn't understand at the time 
what the vision was. And I think it's funny because over the last four or five years, people have started to actually, you know what? We actually realize what you're trying to do now at, at the Pirates. So, you know, but the door closed and you just have to move on and regroup and finance. And that was really my last, other than the, obviously the end of the Olympics, that was my last involvement with British basketball. Yeah. I've been well, overseas get, ever since. At that time, uh, when you were trying to articulate your vision and talking about um, the fact that you want to provide opportunities for British players and, and, and yeah, and have British talent playing, what other BBL clubs, uh, did you feel like there was a, I guess, sort of rubbishing of your view of just saying this, you know, was there, did anyone outright say to you, this will never work? You know, you like, you're, you're completely going in the wrong direction here. This is just not the, the way this is ever going to work as a successful franchise. Yeah, I think they, yeah, there were a couple of people that voiced their opinions in that way. And I think there was a, there definitely an undercurrent of, well, we don't want teams that are in the league that are winning seven games. And this is not what, you know, we need competitive teams. Well, let's look at what the bigger picture is here in long term and, and how it's going to go. Um, so there was definitely a, an undercurrent of, you know, this is not, this is not what we want to. And, and Sam, we were, we were in a position where we could have continued to play that role for years. And if kids then, from there, Jamel goes to Leicester. Great, go go and like anywhere in the world, like go and take that better opportunity and play in a better environment. Um, this is your launching pad to go and play at a higher level or with a better club or to earn more money. Um, but I just don't think people ever really understood where we were going, no matter how many times we, we sort of voiced our uh, thoughts and opinions. You mentioned the the Olympics there. That was something that mm -hmm. definitely, obviously, I, I wanted to speak about. Um, you know, the the like you you're unique in that actually on the men's side at the actual Olympics, you were the only British coach uh, involved on with the coaching staff. I'm I'm pretty yeah. sure, right? Yeah. Um, so Tony you know, was I, on the Tony was with us initially. Yeah. And then once we got 18 months out, something like that, Tony was no longer part of the that program he, he had done some scouting so yeah. tony and i were the only two that yeah were sort of involved and then i met, was stay i mean we'll talk about the, the beginning of the program in a minute but i guess just just on that note like when you talk about uh opportunities for british coaches and um and you know the london 2012 olympics you know we're obviously at home great britain team and on the bench uh, there aren't more British coaches. Do you feel like that is a failure on the administration's part or the federation's part of, of saying, of, of not making sure that there were more British coaches involved to potentially, you know, carry that legacy through and pass it on domestically so that we've got people with Olympic experience that are then able to give back to the country? Because, you know, the rest of, the, rest of those guys... Obviously, um, you know now they're doing they're doing great things, and but they're ultimately they're back in America and don't have a connection with the UK game in in that way. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I'd just be interesting, kind of hearing your your opinions on that. Yeah, I think you know when we talk about ultimately, you know, we talk about the BBL as an opportunity, but ultimately coaching national teams at the highest level. And I think we've seen it on the women's side as well. We should aspire 
to have British coaches coaching those teams. And, you know, when we, when we go back and talk about career paths and that should be part of our pathway, like we should be, you know, we should be looking to have somebody coaching our British Olympic team the next time we qualify. And so I think there was nobody at the point of the Olympics that we could have, I wasn't anywhere near ready to, to coach a team like that or good enough to coach that. And nobody else in the UK was. And, the, you know, ultimately they went with people that had a UK connection. And I think they had two, we had two great coaches in terms of Nick and Chris. That I don't question or challenge and never have done because I think at the, the moment in time we had the best possible people that were the two lead coaches. I think where we probably could have been better is had British coaches on the bench and we had, uh, you know, a number of environments, a number of situations that we had people on the bench that weren't coaching or that really took places of coaches. And I think we, I think we, and I've openly talked about it with those people. I mean, we have a great relationship with all those. And I think we missed an opportunity there um, to put coaches in a position where they were on the front line and living it and then come back. But at the same time, we talked about experiences. Like nobody's ever come back to me as a British coach and then asked, hey, c can you help us with pathways or can you help us with this? Since 2012, other than when Warwick was there, there's been no communication from British basketball. And I think that's a, uh, that's a factor now. I don't know whether that's because there are, there's constant changes, people lose track of who people are, but there has to be experience in Tony coaching overseas and there has to be experience in myself coaching overseas, Chris Hackett coaching overseas in a different environment, but still a different pathway. How often do those people, how often are they reach, you know, reached out to? So I think ultimately there's a disconnect somewhere. Um, and I, is it because British basketball doesn't have basketball people running it? Possibly when you've got people coming from different sports, they don't know the, the people in the past, the history, the whatever. Um, so I, ultimately I'd love to see British coaches coaching at that top level and that should be part of our pathway. And if, if it's not as the head coach, there should be somebody there as a, a lead assistant that's then able to take those experiences because I'm t those experiences, the Commonwealth games, the, the, the Olympics, the European championships, those are some unbelievable experiences that should be shared. Hmm. What, um, what made ultimately made you decide to step away from the, from the Great Britain senior men's program after the Olympics? I, so I had, uh, I took an opportunity to go and coach in Germany and the plan was to remain involved. I had a conversation with Joe Prunty to be on Joe's staff and I, at the end of my year in Germany, I got an opportunity to go and coach in Japan. And uh, basically British basketball said, well, you make a choice. You know, you stay involved with the British program or 
go coach in Japan. And if you coach in Japan, you can't do can't come and be involved with that. So was that because of schedule clashes? I yeah, you know what? I don't know. I mean, it, I think it was partly down to timing, but. I'm not turning down the salary I was earning in Japan to go and earn $5,000 pounds for coaching with the national team. And again, it's just that it wasn't a full-time position. You know, we, what was it? We had four to six weeks. So I met, I met Joe and Warwick in London and it, that was going to move forward. And I've always been passionate about being involved with the national teams, but there comes a point where, you know, things can, so I, it just became, uh, you know, it was impossible for me to do it, basically. Would you like to be involved again in the future? Yeah, I'd love to be. I mean, I'd love to be involved in... Uh, I've always enjoyed being around the national teams, you know, from playing as a youngster to coaching regional stuff to coaching 16s all the way through the 20s. Um, and then obviously an involvement with the with the men's program. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's an opportunity that I would 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 relish being involved again. I'd be interested to kind of hear your thoughts on Olympic legacy. You know, like you know, in the run up to the Olympics, that was the buzzword, and um, it was thrown around so often and so so much. And there was definitely uh, hope, I think, within the basketball community specifically that this was going to be the the match that lights the fire, so to speak, because we have heard. For, for decades about all this potential the sport has and this is going to be the opportunity where it's going mm -hmm. to be in front of millions and millions of Bibles. Um, yeah, what's your take on the Olympic legacy from a basketball standpoint? Like, What would you say are the tangible, um, I guess, things that have been left behind as a result of the Olympics that wouldn't have existed without the Olympics? Uh, and do you think that there is the legacy that people or, or even you personally were, were ex was expecting there to be uh, prior to Olympics. Do you think that's what's actually ultimately ended up happening? Um, short, short and sweet. No, I don't think it, we lived up to what was expected. I think funding, you know, we should have siphoned funding that would have given us longer term um, ability to do things. I think, when I think of looking, well, when I look at legacy, the only thing I really see is facility, a copper box. Um, we don't, there was no real legacy from coaching, carryover from coaching. There was, I don't think there was any real legacy throughout basketball in the UK. I think it allowed GB to continue to exist and run programs. Um, but I don't think the sport as a whole probably embraced it. You know, we've, you know, there's been pockets of money that have come and I don't know how those have been used and what's happened, but I think that would be the general population's view of a legacy. Like, I can't, to be honest with you, I can't even remember how we defined what that legacy looked like. But to me, when I look at it, we have a copper box where we play in London, which is not really a basketball facility. It, it does everything, but we're not playing. It's not created opportunities for us to play in European competition or at club levels. You know, we've tried and it's not been successful. Um, 
you know, has has it has it boosted the BBL? I, you know, I've watched a couple of games this year online, and it, I don't know. It's is it is it the same basketball that we were watching five, ten years ago? With the exception of a number of te- you know, couple of teams. What do you think would have needed to be done differently in the run up to the Olympics to change that outcome? Well, I, I think to me the legacy is full time employment for like that's that's where you're gonna underpin the success of the sport in the country. We can't continue to run it as a volunteer basis. I know we have areas that you know, we have you know, Barking has a professional environment, but they're employed through the school or whatever. You have a couple of academies that do that, but it's what we talked about earlier. The BBL has no full-time assistants, let alone two full-time assistants and a video guy and all the other things that you need to, to grow a club. And I think for me, legacy would have been about providing programs and pathways for coaching for the players. Um, which it may exist. You know, I'm not on the ground there, but I don't see any real evidence of that. Mm. Yeah, no, it's, uh, I, th- I think when I, when I look at it, I'm, I'm like, I agree with you on, yeah, definitely the copper box is, 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 even though it's not a basketball-specific facility, it's provided opportunities that wouldn't have otherwise existed in terms of having a venue in London that's yeah. medium-sized that, that, yeah, obviously London Lions are playing out of it, so for them it's, it's unbelievable. Otherwise, yeah. their options would have been slim. Um, but I think the other thing is that the, actually the formations of, of the, the British basketball programme as a whole, like that came about because of winning the Olympic bid, right? And before that, I, we didn't, well, not yeah. in the immediate years before, we didn't have senior teams that were trying to compete in European competitions and, and whatever. And since then, we've, you know, we're qualifying for Eurobaskets and, and doing stuff. So Yeah, I agree. Yeah. And I think our younger s- groups, younger age groups have benefited from that. Yeah. That there's been a, a more directed programme with, with GB, yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I still think, as you say, that there's a, a lot more that could be done and, and definitely from, I, I remember so clearly, do you remember the, the London um, test event, the sort of the invitational tournament that was, that was done, the sort of, I think it was like the yeah. November before in 2011. Yeah, we had Lithuania there and... China. China, um, that's it. Yeah. yeah, and it was like, I remember going there and just being blown away by the amount of media that was there. And I was just, because, mm-hmm. you know, I'd been used to going to basketball events and I was pretty much the only one there with maybe Mark yeah. Woods and, and Rob Dugdale, you know. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, and all of a sudden, you know, everyone's everyone, everyone's fighting to try and have a conversation with people and there's TV cameras everywhere. And I was just like, if the Olympics is going to be, well, this is just a test event. The Olympics is going to be this times 100 or whatever. Um, you know, basketball has the potential to be in front of millions of eyeballs uh for you know over the course of two weeks on on a regular basis this could really change a lot um but at the same time i i do remember thinking in the run up to it well to capitalize on that potential interest that's going to come off the back of the um added exposure and and, um media visibility there needs to be an infrastructure in place to be able to support that potential interest and that would have needed to be done in the run-up to the olympics the years before preceding it you know like if all of a sudden after 2012 hundreds of thousands of kids suddenly decided they want to play basketball well actually if they'd flooded the clubs that has existed the clubs would have been overran and wouldn't have actually had the capacity the number of coaches to be able to support those kids and it's mm-hmm. something that you know it's almost like when the bid was won that was when the stuff 
needed to start being put in place and said, okay, best case scenario, let's say that 2012 leads to this much interest in basketball. Um, This is what needs to be done now to ensure that we can then capitalize on it. And and that, I don't think that work was ever really done. And and then obviously there was that spike in interest never really happened in in the same way. So I think that probably fell between, it was almost like in no man's land because you had England basketball, then you had British basketball. British basketball was focused on all this stuff. British basketball was focused on this stuff, and it never really kind of, you know, yeah. there was no cross pollination, and it, things like that just got visions of that just got lost. Yeah, yeah, and then, yeah, and of course there was always, and to this day, there's the, the the sort of the politics between the home nations and 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 the British Basketball Federation, and and I think because there wasn't that. Um, as you call it, cross-pollination or a sort of coordinated approach of saying, okay, you know, we're Barcelona and Barcelona Wales, Barcelona Scotland, and we're taking care of the grassroots. Um, but how can we tie in with you as the British Basketball Federation to ensure that this sort of elite end is is uh, connected to the grassroots? And, and I don't think that work was ever done, and those conversations were never had in a way to ensure that um, the Olympics was the success that we would have all wanted it to be from a basketball standpoint anyway. And obviously that's in- incredibly don't, frustrating. Don't you think, think that that uh, sort of mirrors what goes on in the UK in general. If you took, just take London, for example, and all the all the clubs and the talent. I mean, I remember sitting down with Luala at one point and talking about let's let's look at uh, like one team in London with hubs where we're feeding the best players and the best players, like we talked about, that Serbian sort of. London has always been so disjointed about this is my I'm doing this, this is my team. This is, and so we miss, and I say we, I think players miss out on so much because we're, ne- we're not connected. No, it's, I'm, this is my area, I'm doing it. Yeah. And it, it, it's, yeah. it's exactly the same model. And that's, I think, yeah. part, goes back to the beginning of our conversation is why British basketball in general, not just the national teams, always struggles because we always seem to be at loggerheads. Yeah. And, and instead think, of coming think, together. Yeah, I think that almost, uh, that's where f- f- I feel like the Federation needs to take more central control in those situations of defining the pathway and saying, okay, whether it's a tiered club system and saying this club is responsible for, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you're a grassroots development club, you're an elite club, and actually, you know, when a player gets to this level, you send them to this club, and that's what yep. you need to do, and we're going to reward you for doing that. Um, I always remember Lloyd Gardner always says to me, you know, in football, if if a local, you know, grassroots club gets their kids get signed to Arsenal or Manchester United, everyone celebrates it, and everyone says, oh, well, oh my God, what, what? It's, mm-hmm. it's seen as an absolute win, not only for the player but for the club as well, because it's showing that they're developing talent where. Within basketball, if if you know a, a sort of smaller grassroots club, um, you know the player receives interest from a an elite academy or, or a professional club or whatever. It's there's a very different attitude towards it. It's not celebrated. I think, in that I same think we way. had that when when you look back at like Sunderland and Leicester and Bracknell and well, you had what was it twelve major clubs in the country, and even at junior level, like. I remember traveling with Humph Long, playing at East London, playing at Lofts, travel with Chris Morgan, Crystal Palace. And we'd have to go to Manchester to play a game. We'd play 10 teams, 12 teams in a league, national, a national league. And then we went away from it. 
then suddenly it's like we're going to have as many teams as possible. We've diluted our pool of players. The players are not playing against the best players week in, week out. It comes down to money, but that, I think, hurt us. When we went away from that true national league of top teams, and I came from Folkestone. If I wanted to play top basketball, I had to go to Crystal Palace when I was a youngster. And that doesn't happen anymore. Okay, so now well, now you go and play at, Met, at Canterbury, and then you play at somewhere else. And, and so now we've got all these kids, mm. and it's not a true national league. So our best players are not playing with each other week in, week out, which yeah. is what you see in, you go to Spain, you know, these better kids are funneled to Barcelona, Madrid, Valencia. Yeah. So and that's, that's what's almost happening with the academy. The, well, that's what's, that was, is what happened with the academy leagues where it's like, you know, at one point when the EABL was slightly smaller, um, the elite academies were where the top kids were going and it, it almost made the junior national, national league, league redundant uh, mm -hmm. because actually the bet, the way you could see the best players every single week yep. without fail go against each other was in the academy Absolutely. leagues, not in the national leagues um, where now it's, it's become even uh, more convoluted. And it's, it's difficult from, from a governing body standpoint, you know, if, you, if you're Barcelona, England, your funding is, is based on the participation numbers and your number Absolutely. of clubs and, and being able to point to all of those numbers and say to sporting and look how well we're doing, look at the growth of this. Um, where you're trying to do both the grassroots side of things and uh, ensure that you're developing elite talent for the future. And so, you know, I understand that there are definitely um, challenges within that um, from a federation standpoint. But, as I think, well, but I think you can, even with that Sport England funding, you can have and continue to grow the sport at grassroots level, at that base level, and even the second tier and third tier. But we need to have a clearly identified elite level and from what you're saying, even the academies are now getting diluted. Um, you know, Junior National League, you had Michael Hales, Steve Bucknell, Joe White. Those guys all playing, all on the same teams back in the day. And so you would, you would be able to see the best talent. You could go to a game and watch 10 kids that were top 10 players in the country on one day. Yeah. And they're competing against each other. When you look at uh, out of interest, because obviously one you, you came up in a generation, of course, where there was you know a wealth of a wealth of talent, but then also um, you've been involved with you know coaching the junior national teams and seen a bunch of talent come through, and then of course now I assume that well you can maybe keep tabs a little bit online and, and see sort of some of the players that come through, especially you know at some European championships mm -hmm. when games are streamed and stuff. What do you think about the sort of the development of, of junior British talent over the years? Do you feel like um, it has got better? Do you feel like it's stayed the same? Do you feel like it's got worse? Like kind of what would be your assessment over the last, uh, you know, a couple of decades, few decades of, of, of seeing um, it all at every level? I think we've, <clears throat> I think there's been a better job done in terms of finding those kids or more kids of, let's say, I think, players are gravitated towards basketball that are, are great athletes. And then we've given them some tool sets and then they've probably gone to college, refined those, then come back or they've gone overseas. You know, how many, how many players have, that have stayed in the UK have actually progressed to playing at the same levels. The kids have gone to the States or to Europe. And I think that would, and I don't know that number. I don't know what that looks like. 
um, you know, there's there's been a couple of people now. Gary is Maitland is starting to do player development work, which we've always lacked. I mean, in the UK, it's always been about team basketball, throw it out, team stuff, team stuff, run this, run that, do this. But there's never been a focus on player development. Barking's probably been doing it, and you know, now some of the more the the bigger academies are probably doing it. But we've never really, it's never been a major part of British basketball. We've relied on athletes and athletic ability. And um, I think we can do a lot more, but it goes back to full circle. Who's going to pay you? Is it a full-time job? Are you doing it after school? Are you a teacher? Are you working at a bank and having to do it at your own time? Uh, so those things inhibit, I think, at times, mm. um, that development. I think watching some of the national team stuff in the summer, there are definitely some very talented players coming through. Um, I, I see a marginal change, but I still see a lot of the, we're going to get out and press and we're going to be super athletic and we're, there is a better understanding. I think there's better teaching going on at, at certain point parts of the country programs, etc. You can see that within the players. Um, but we're still very reliant on, you know, athletic teams to go out and and compete and play. And we've had success at times and at other times it just doesn't work against, you know, teams in Europe that are being developed. They've got skill sets. They understand how to play the game, you know, so. Mm -hmm. Talking about kind of assessing talent, obviously, and uh, analyzing basketball games, like your role at the moment, you're an advanced scout with the Toronto Raptors. That's correct, all right? Yeah, I mean, that's been on hold since for a year now, really. I mean, I've done a couple of games, but COVID's just killed any advanced scouting stuff. So um, I've ended up coaching some this year. I decided to take a year from last March to enjoy doing some of the things I haven't had an opportunity to do. So I've ended up coaching some high school basketball, a lot of fly fishing and skiing. Um, wow. And I'm in that process now of um some stuff in asia some stuff possibly here um going back to being full-time and the break's been great you know it's allowed you to step back and watch things so i had an opportunity to go up and spend time with chris and um you know with him and do stuff but was down in florida the last last two weeks three weeks ago caught up with nick and and those guys but uh no, basketball world has been turned upside down a little. It's, uh, you know, changed all that periphery stuff. So Very much so. Like, do you feel like, uh, you know, having done multiple stints, um, both in the, in the G League and, and also obviously around NBA teams, do you feel like you're, you're close to being able to kind of have an opportunity to really uh, sort of infiltrate that NBA ecosystem and follow in the footsteps of, you know, the Nick Nurse, the Chris Finch, uh, and potentially have an opportunity within, within the big league, so to speak? Yeah, I mean, I'd like to think so. I think professional sport is a very political animal in terms of, you know, component structure of teams and networks that you're in. Um, I think for me sort of 
tactical and technical, I feel as though I would be more than capable of being in, in those environments. Do those environment, does that environment present itself? Who knows? I don't know. I mean, we're examining some, some of that now, um, but it, it's a, it's a difficult world. You know, is it better? Do, would I prefer and go and coach overseas as a head coach where I can run my own team or would I rather go and be back at the bottom of a totem pole, which is what would happen. I mean, you know, my experiences don't put me on the front of a bench or maybe not even behind a bench. Maybe it's in the video room. Um, so I, th I think it depends on the environment. Um, I think there's, there's opportunities. Um, when I left for Thailand from Toronto, you know, I, in hindsight, maybe the option to stay in Toronto was a better, better decision at the time, but I chose that route. I went to Thailand. I had great experiences since and opportunities post that. So we'll see what happens. Um, mm. I'm not hung up on it. You know, you'd love to be able to be part of that, but, mm. uh, you have to be competent in the eyes of the people that are going to hire. They're not just going to hire you because you're the friend of Nick or the friend of Chris or the friend of Nate or whoever. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, it's funny talking about you know starting from the you'd, you'd have to kind of work your way up again. It's like even you know I think about uh, you know Fab Flournoy and you know him being here and when he was here was really at the top mm -hmm. of, of the top of the top. And then you know he gets the NBA and all of a sudden it's like to even try and find a, a photo of him uh, you know involved with the team is very difficult uh, to to see him on the bench is very difficult. It's like he's he's again like working his way up and having to kind of. Um, yeah, sort of. Yeah, begin, I mean, you know, Fab is a, Fab is in the video room, you know, yeah. and does some player development. So it's a very big change from running his own team and being a head coach. Um, you know, those are the, those are the choices you know you make. Yeah, a hundred percent. Talk about the, the that Thailand opportunity when when uh, you left the the Raptors, like. Um, you know, I heard you say talking about that. That was like the first time where you had an opportunity for a job with actual financial stability and security, uh, almost like what you'd been working up towards. You know, when you're talking about mm -hmm. opportunity over money, all, all of the periods up until that point had been opportunity, and now all of a sudden you're like, okay, now uh, you can. I don't want to say cash in because obviously it was an opportunity as well, but actually there was a financial upside to it as well. Like, oh, yeah, um, absolutely. When you think about that sort of taking that job uh and that moment like did it feel like sort of um i guess vindication for the sacrifices that you'd made up until that point yeah uh, you know it i mean that's uh what was that eight years i don't know seven years in and you know chris and i always talk about it. it's a 10-year cycle until you get your feet embedded and you start to make so yeah absolutely i mean it, it japan japan afforded me that opportunity and then the opportunity to go back uh, or to go and be involved with the g league which is obviously a, a drastic change in finances then but it was the opportunity again over the of the money but then thailand and thailand philippines and qatar all presented a lot better financial situations and you know, you've done your work, you've grafted, you've 
you've made those changes. Um, and they were all steps in the right direction as well. Um, but ultimately, you want to make money. You know, like we talk about in, in England, like the problem there is that you don't make the money. So ultimately, you're trying to take those opportunities over money early to put yourself in a position to now have an opportunity, but also to make money at the same time. And, mm. you know, you've got to, it's, it's not going to happen overnight. You're going to have to graft and work and be prepared to fail, to be hired again and fail again and hire again. So. And ultimately, ultimately the, that job in Thailand led to a job uh, as the head coach of the Thailand national team as well, right? Yeah. So I went out, well, I actually went out to do both work as a, with a club, and then uh, with the, as a national team coach, just for that summer, the plan was to go back to Toronto. And um, we ended up losing to the Philippines in the final of the Stankovic Cup. I think it was by six or seven. We were right there. They'd never gotten that close. And it was really fun in a short space of time, a lot of improvement. Um, and then the national organization, which is also the club team that ran the club team, basically put an offer on the table and said, we want you to stay and coach the club and the team. Then other teams objected. So I ended up just coaching the, the national team um, and sort of oversaw what went on at the club with Mono Vampires. Okay. And then I, I, saw, I saw an article um, someone had written uh, where you, you in, they'd interviewed you talking about how, how they had actually ended up firing you completely unexpectedly. You thought that, you yeah. know, based, it was a, it was sort of long-term, a, a long-term project, um, which you, both you and the Federation seemed to initially have been in agreement about that it was going to be, you know, three to five years or whatever to get to kind mm -hmm. of where you wanted to be. And then out of nowhere, um, kind of yeah you lost your job like how how difficult was that uh, of a pillow uh, of, a, of a of a pill to swallow um and ultimately have you had any more clarity since then about kind of like the reasons behind it and and uh yeah why that ultimately why they ultimately ended up to go, ended up going in that direction sure i can we we just we just won a silver medal in one of the comp i can't remember which it was southeast asia or something and I'd come back, I was in Denver with Finchie and we pulled into the airport in Denver to, to go back to Thailand and my phone rang and it was my assistant, a guy called Doug Marty, who I've known for years, coached in Luxembourg, was coaching the club team and he said, I think when you get back, they may, be, they may fire you. I was like, huh? And uh, I'm sitting in the car with Finchie and Finchie's like, what's that about? I'm like, I don't really know. Like, anyway, I land, they meet me. And uh, they're like, we've decided that we need to go in a different direction. Okay, you got to pay me out and do whatever. So there was all those sort of discussions. Anyway, what transpires is the fed the federation had changed certain personnel, and the people that had now come into the federation wanted the club coach that was the, the coach of the team that they were affiliated to, which is what. So they basically swapped it out. And of course, they're like anywhere, especially in Asia, you know, there's arguments about money owed and whatever. And, you, you know, one of just some of the things that you have to deal with and, and pass with. But um, it was all to do with a change of guard and who was there and what they wanted. And 
they wanted control. And of course, they saw me as linked to the other club that had previously been overseeing mm. the national team. So it was just one of those things. Do you think that every time you kind of reach a tier, like a uh, sort of, I, I don't know the best way of describing it, but almost like having been able to check that box of like, okay, senior national team head coach, it puts you in a new sort of category that opens you up to a new set of jobs that maybe weren't there before. So ultimately, you know, you ended up then coaching the Qatar national team, right? Like, do you think mm-hmm. that opportunity came off the back of having coached the, the Thai national team? And do you think in the future now, if other, you know, when there are other potential uh, senior national team job opportunities that are going, you're going to be in the mix because you now have that on your resume? Sure. It, uh, the Qatar job came directly from being involved with the national team of Thailand. We played Qatar in the... Um, Asian Championships in Iran. Um, we had no imports. We played with just straight ties. And uh, Qatar had a lot of naturalized plus an American, and we lose to them on the buzzer. Um, in fact, uh, we had the ball to win, and the, and the point guard dribbled it off his foot. So uh, from that, there was... Um, Obviously, people took note of. There was a lot of Thailand had never really featured in the Asian stuff, and they hadn't played in the Asian Cup for a long time. And uh, a lot of people took notice of the way that we played and how we played and the way we did things. FIBA officials, and there was a guy that was working with Qatar at the time, uh, Fess Irvin, who was uber complimentary about what we'd done and how we played. And um, when they fired the Greek coaches after that tournament, they uh, directly approached. I didn't use an agent. I didn't have an agent at the time. But they basically came came to me and the process sort of rolled on and it went from there. And then that puts you in a position because we, you know, we played – uh, New Zealand in two games before they went to play Iran in their Olympic qualifying rounds. And we, we lost the first game, beat them in the second game. Um, Piro was there. Piro Cameron was there. So you're playing at a different level. You're, com- you're, you're competing against these other coaches. And it's like, a, it's like a brotherhood almost that, you know, they, they, they see you, they see how you do things. Um, whether you win or lose, they know what the situation is. The, you're competitive. The team, the way the team plays, so it ultimately it puts you in those conversations when teams came up. And there was there was a number of situations when COVID hit last year that were available. That you know, I've chosen not to travel while. And, and live overseas while that stuff's going on. And I decided to start my green card process, which I've been meaning to do for years. So I'm now a green card holder, which allows me to obviously live and work here without any any issues. Wow. Do you have an agent now? Do like, just out of interest, uh, show my naivety here, do most coaches have agents? Like, Does it work the same way as, uh, with agents with players as agents with coaches? Yeah. Uh, I, I have one now and that, that will work both FIBA and NBA. Um, early on, I don't think you need one. You need to just find opportunities and, and grow. And agents aren't going to help you go and coach a regional league or in Germany. 
that's all about networks and I think where coaching on the national team's level helps because you're exposed to people in the in the German organization that are involved in other clubs and the word gets hey well this guy was coaching in the summer and would be a great fit for you but the further the more you move forward then like Japan I used an agent um, the Philippines I used an agent and then Qatar just happened I didn't need to I could circumnavigate that but you know with the stuff that's now developing in Asia and in the US then I will I'll use an agent for sure I'm I'm aware of time here so I'm I'm going to start with uh, firing some qu- quick rapid questions at you uh sure. to finish up with around various different topics uh, looking back on your career um and I'd like to start with your favorite uh, basketball memory I mean, London 2012, being part of that is uh, something that you never thought would, would happen or be involved with um, and is, you know, irreplaceable, really. Is there a particular standout memory from London 2012 uh, that is your, your, your sort of highlight think, of the entire tournament? I think I would say it's across the program that we had. We played that... Uh, test event in Manchester where we played the United States team and sitting on the bench and suddenly it's a reality like Kobe and LeBron and these guys are all standing there and you and it was it was like you were I mean you're there to be an assistant on the bench and you're just you're watching the game like a spectator it was it was just unreal so yeah. um things like yeah, that I think, yeah looking back it, it as much as I've, I felt like at the time I was aware how big of a deal it was, it's only really when you look back at the opportunities that came with the 2012 Olympics Absolutely. that you just realise that, you know, since then there has been nothing like it. And obviously in the run-up to it, there was nothing like it. It's just a, a completely unique experience that I don't think anyone in this country would experience again until we're potentially able to host uh, an Olympics. Absolutely. It's going to be a tough one, but um, the best British junior player... Uh, that you've ever seen it doesn't matter what they did at senior level but as a junior um, who would get the nod from you Andrew Sullivan was would probably be at the top of that list um, pretty special as a junior you know commanded the game and then Lowell it was funny you know I'd pick Lowell up in Croydon and take him to camps and this long gangly thing and to see him grow, I mean, the way that he did is, is phenomenal. So, I mean, those two guys have, I think, been benchmarks for British basketball as juniors. Saying that, as a, as a young kid, you know, I got to see Buck and those guys are older than me playing. So, there's been a few, but, you know, those, those guys stand out. Do you think it was... Uh... At the time, like, do you think Luol, it was obvious that Luol was a future NBA player, NBA All-Star, even at that age? Or like, you know, when you're talking about the likes of a Buck, uh, a Sullivan, a Luol, like, do you think at a junior level, they were all very similar kind of talent level? And they all could have potentially gone on if the opportunities had been there to be, you know, real NBA stars? I think it's very hard to say at that age that they you know, they were going to be all-stars and they were going to be this. I think they, they definitely, you know, Lawal had a skill set and um, that was different to the rest of them. And you could see that there was the potential to play in the NBA. 
Um, but there's so many players out there of the same standard, and it takes just one thing to define a player over another. Um, so I think Lawal probably yes, and I didn't know Buck well enough at the time, um, and Andrew probably was just always going to be a very good professional outside of that environment, like working uh, Europe and high mm. levels. The best individual performance you've ever witnessed by a British player? Wow. At, uh, any, at any level? And yeah. It's, it's probably going to go back to Lou you know, men's teams or when we played at junior levels, you know, he's just so commanding in, in the game. Um, Will Neighbor, when I was coaching the under 20s and the under 18 with, with Jimmy Guyman, you know, Will Neighbor was, was pretty dominant at a European level, like play, it had some great performances for us. Um, mm. Probably Lou. And then, like best, I don't want to say individually best, but or, or, or rather name a few like uh, of the top sort of other British coaches that you feel uh, are, are the best sort of ex nose guys or, or people that you'd give you the toughest challenge if you were to play against them. Like, who would you give a, as a nod if you were trying to label some of the, the other top British coaches? You know, Tony's Tony's right there. Um, do we count? Obviously, count Rob as British now. Um, probably not. Um, I, you know, that there's a generation of coaches there that I've that I don't know that well. You know, having watched Mark over the Eurobasket yeah, stuff that Mark's he's been doing, one. yeah, he's uh, he does a great job. Um. Jimmy Guyman, you know, I see as long term as one of the most underrated coaches I think that's ever been around. His understanding of the game um, was second to none. I mean, I learned so much from Jimmy the time that I spent with him. Um, Did he assist you with the under twenties as well? I thought yeah, like I went to an yeah, under twenty camp and he was there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was my assistant and learn an awful lot from Jimmy. You know, he's just wealth of knowledge. Just a, And I remember playing him with East London teams that were, you know, super athletic and probably not as skilled, but just overpowered a lot of teams. And they, we'd, play, we'd play Jimmy and his teams, and it was just a whitewash. You know, they just manhandled just athletes in the way that he coached and what he did. Um. So, I don't, I don't know other other British coaches. I think that's that's good. You're giving us a you know Lloyd Lloyd's. I'm glad to see Lloyd's back coaching. You know he's always been, you know, at the forefront of what what's going on with British basketball. Yeah, um, Lloyd Gardner. It's good to see him back at Manchester. Hundred percent. And then finally, just uh, sort of, I guess, looking forward the future. Um, you know, you said that you're potentially looking at opportunities at the moment. Like, what's in the immediate future for you? Do you think, if you were to place a bet on kind of where you're most likely to end up, and then 
looking a bit more ahead, sort of the next three to five years, um, in an ideal situation, if everything works out as as you would hope it to be, uh, where would you like to be? I mean, ultimately, I'd love to be in an NBA environment, um, being able to have an impact and, you know, at whatever level, I, ultimately coaching. Um, but I think, you know, way that between that and going back to Asia, um, a couple of the opportunities, you know, in Japan and um, possibly in China, um, where you can be a head coach of a program and, and, and run things. Uh, but I think everybody's dream would be to be involved in an NBA staff. But who knows what that's going to look like even now moving forward um, next year. Perfect. That's a perfect place to leave it. Uh, Tim, thank you so much. It, this was a, it was a little bit different than my normal style of sort of doing a career rundown uh, because obviously you've done that before, but it was um, it proved to be really interesting. I think we went in depth on a lot of topics that people find super interesting and I really appreciate you taking the time and I wish you all the best um, with your next opportunity, whatever that might be. Keep us in the loop and hopefully uh, I will see you very soon. Very good. Thanks, Sam. Appreciate it. Psst. Hey, podcast listener. But you weren't expecting to hear from me again. Now that you've listened to the show, please take two seconds to take your podcast player out of your pocket and give us a rating and review on iTunes. It would be massively appreciated and goes a long way in helping us spread this content far and wide. Literally take your phone out of your pocket right now. Uh, open up your podcast player. Go to the Hoops Fix podcast. You'll see the option to leave a rating and review. Drop us a five star if you love it. And uh, if you could take two seconds just to write a review as well, it would be massively, massively appreciated. Thank you and speak to you next week. You are listening to the Hoops Fix podcast, the official voice of the UK's largest basketball website. Visit hoopsfix.com for exclusive news, videos and more.